So Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes 5, we're, so we're getting nigh on to halfway through here, and we're in the practical section. It's not quite as negative. You know, it's not all the gloom and doom that we've had. Uh, he is still um, looking at life under the sun, life here on earth, not necessarily eternity, um, though that always creeps in. Uh, it's always in there. He'll talk about, he mentions God, and he mentions eternity, and he gives, gives us those, those things to think about, and we'll see that here as well. But he's given us practical reasons uh, on living, practical advice on living. Um, it's easy to get bogged down in this world. It's a dark world. Uh, we can get bogged down in, in many traps. Satan has many traps. Uh, he, he, he wants to keep us down. He doesn't want us to be happy. He doesn't want us to be joyous. He doesn't want us to enjoy life. He doesn't want us to acknowledge the Creator. He doesn't want us uh, to enjoy family. He wants us to, to be oppressed. He wants us to feel beaten down and trodden under and just be negative and, and, and hateful and, and die in a negative, hateful place and, and go away. He wants to distract us. And so we need to be fighting against that. And this is part of what Solomon, I think, has kind of given us a peek behind the scenes. He is an administrator. He's a king. You get no higher. And kingship's different than a presidency in that they don't answer to anyone. Matter of fact, we have a little example on that in Daniel when it talks about the world government of the Gentiles. It starts out with Nebuchadnezzar, who was a true monarchy, you know, who was a dictator in the sense that there was no one that he answered to. You know, he was the highest on the totem pole. And then it went to the Medio Persians, where it was split and it got more corrupt, down to the Grecian, down to the Romans, which was less pure because you had, um, more like our government, where you had different houses and senates and, and stuff that would come in. But it also got more ruthless. You know, Nebuchadnezzar at least had a heart, you know, that was there. He might have been mean sometimes, but he at least had some sympathy as a human, where in a bureaucracy system that's all set up with all these answers, it's like, I don't check a box, I don't care. It just become a, a ruthless beast that he talked about that, that came, that, that was Rome, and, and, and so he kind of tells us about that in government and those over us, and that um, you know, that's wickedness, but man, to have the Lord over us, man, that is something, you know, and to have that oppression of government is, is scary, and, and he wants to help us with that, he gives us a little peek behind the scenes, things that we might not think about, so Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8, he says, if thou seest the oppression of the poor, and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. And again, it's in the King's English. It's a little bit you know, wonky sometimes. Uh, the main thing here is that Solomon is acknowledging oppression. He's like, there is oppression. There is evil. There are those who rule over people and they're not good. You know, that they are, they do it in a wicked way. They do it in a, in a, in a not good way. You know, as a matter of fact, they let the power go to their head and they're perverse as they do that. He says, I acknowledge that. I know that. We see that. Even in my kingdom, there are those that are under me that, that, that are doing that. That acknowledgement doesn't mean it's right. He knows it isn't right. Matter of fact, it's a common theme that you'll pick up in Ecclesiastes and his other writings in Proverbs as well, is that he acknowledges that the poor are downtrodden and that they're being oppressed, and, and he hates it. And he kind of picks up that theme from his father David, you know, like, oh, you know, help them. Uh, but he knows it isn't right. But he gives us a little something to help us. He's like, we, we can't just wave a wand and make it go away. We can't try to make it right because where men are, men will be evil and men will be doing evil things. You know, it just creeps up everywhere. You, know, uh, you want to... Um, pervert and corrupt you know, anything, put a person in it. You know, it's like we, we will figure out a way to make it corrupt. And so, um, and his advice here, his little peek to help us, is that he says, know that those that are over you 
have someone over them. Uh, those that you are accountable to have someone that they are accountable to. He, he says, take that to heart. I don't know about you, but, but, but that does help me. You know, sometimes knowing that, um, oh, I'm accountable, you know, to this person, and knowing that that person is accountable to someone, and they're accountable to someone, you know, it should be a trickle down in that, as we want to treat others as we want to be treated, you would think, is how it's supposed to work. But even, you know, even like, say, the higher echelons of our government, there's someone that they give an account to, that there's someone behind the strings pulling, pulling those strings, and that is true. And so there's, there's evil even at the very top, that there's someone that they're having to uh, give an account to, with ultimately the account, no matter who might be at the top of the whole works, that, as it works, but they all have to give an account to God one day. Everyone will have to stand before him. Everyone will have to give an answer for what they're doing. There's no one who just can do whatever they want without having any repercussions. And Solomon's kind of reminding us, uh, reminding us of that. You know, don't let their bad behavior affect you. You, know, you realize that they're having to give an account to somebody, and, and I think he wants us to take a little satisfaction in that. At least that's how I take it. Um, and that's usually where it changes me. Not always, but usually changes me. When I picture... Whoever it is above me that, that's opposing me, whether it's, you know, I'm writing a check to IRS or, you know, or, or, or whatever it is out there. But knowing that, or your know, boss who's having a bad day, but knowing that they're going to stand before God one day and give an account. That God is going to judge them for who they are, how they are, how they're behaving, how they're using the power that's been given to them. Are they using it for right? You know, if it's a banker, you know, and, and denying these things or charging you unjust, you know, uh, fares and, and, and penalties or, you know, whatever it is, whatever the system is that is corrupt and you're frustrated by it. You're like, it's just not right. And you're there knowing that they're going to give an account and picturing them and that system and those who set up that system, knowing that one day, they're going to have to give an account, and God's going to hold them for every little thing that they did. And once I picture them in hell, and knowing that this is there forever, I find that I begin to pray for them differently than just being like, oh, them, you know, oh, I wish that they'd have, you know, whatever's going on. You know, but when I see them having their eyes open, you know, that, that, that this is what I'm going to spend eternity in. This is what I'm accountable for. And I realize that this, this, is what, this is it. This is my future. This is my eternity. I begin to pray that they'd repent and trust. That they would see their wicked ways. That God would expose it to them now, here and now, so that they would be able to turn from it and turn to him and see how good he is and then trickle that down and, and pass that on. Sadly, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm like David. And you would think, well, that's a good thing, right? Because in the, in the, we're going through First uh, and Second Kings on Wednesday night, and David's always the, the, the mark that they, they, they put for the king. You know, he was like his father David. But certainly I'm like David when David prays his imprecatory psalms. Now, that's a $10 word. But the imprecatory psalm is this. It's a psalm that invokes judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies or God's enemies. And David does that. There's a lot of time when he's like, judge him. Set him on fire now. You know, and he gets into some, he's, he uses a lot of, of words. And he wrote, you know, an imprecatory psalm. He wrote one or two or 14 of them. You know, so there's at least 14 different ones. And I think then there's other little nuances through other psalms where, where it's kind of in there that aren't necessarily counted in the list. One of them we can look at, Psalm 5. It's a short one. An imprecatory psalm. And a lot of it's because David's just like, it's not right. You know, it, they're, they're putting something on me that's not right. So, Psalm 5. It's shortened to the point. So, 
Psalm 5, we'll read the whole thing. Verse 1 says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider, consider my meditation. Verse 2, Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. So he's pleading out to God here. He goes, God, hear me. Hear what I'm saying. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and I will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all the workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak uh, leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. He puts all that together. Basically, he's describing how God sees sinners. He despises them. He hates wickedness. He hates deceivers. He hates people who lie. He puts it all together. He says, Lord, I know this is your character. I know this is people that you hate. And so he continues going on. He says, but as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy and in and in thy fear will I worship toward the holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. He's like, I have a lot of enemies. They're trying to pull me off. Help keep me on track. Help me to keep me focused. To remember about the important things. Verse 9. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward parts is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Here's the imprecatory part, verse 10. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out of the multitude of their transgression, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous, and favor will uh, thou compass him with a shield. He's like, they're, they're wicked. You know, be with the righteous. Destroy the enemies. Destroy them. May they fall by their own counsel. May the trap that they have set for others, may that be their, their undoing. May that be what comes back upon them. And Romans kind of says that. You know, it's like the, the things about what you judge by will be how you were judged. And the traps that you put on other people, God says, I will use your words against you and you, hold you to that standard. Only thing, it's my account and what's going on. And so David is praying for that. He's like, oh, I pray you just destroy them. They're eval. They're evil. They're opponent. They're upon me and, and, and David's running for his life a lot of the time and so he is praying Lord judge them they're wicked they're evil and he has like I said at least 14 different psalms where he does that where he, he brings the heat like this and there's a famous one um, that's not considered an imprecatory psalm but it kind of is if you turn over to Psalm 23 one we know one we could probably all say as a group I'll read all it here. So Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, did you see the imprecatory part? It's kind of hidden. It's verse 5. He says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, it's kind of rubbing salt in the wound here, making it sting. They were wrong, you were right. That's what David's saying. He's like, Lord, in this, you were the good shepherd. I'm following you, and one day you will receive me into your presence. My enemies were wrong. 
Everything they said was wrong. Everything they said about you was wrong. They were liars. They were wickedness. You know, they were the atheist council who mocked and made fun of. One day, they're going to know that they are all wrong, and they are going to know that we are right. And he says, prepare a table for me in front of them. Let them see that I was right and they were wrong. You know, that following after you was the right way. Um, so, you know, your enemy's suffering anyway. And he says, while they're suffering, could you let them watch that we were right? Could you let them see that you're accepting us and you're praising us? Can you let them see what, what goodness that we are we're going into? Can you let them understand how wrong they were, that they should have listened, that they shouldn't have mocked, that they should have heard what I was saying instead of making fun of me and belittling me? And doing Could you make it so that they know, so that you can see the reward that I do get in your presence? So we don't always read it in that way, but that's what he's saying there, right? Prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Let them see the reward that I get. Kind of a little bit, aha, in that way. That's a precatory part. Jesus gives us an example of that too. The story of the rich man Lazarus, if you turn to Luke 16. Luke 16 is a good place to know where to find. It's a... A story that we often go to, I, I call it a story, not a parable because it uses personal names, but uh, we know the story of rich man Lazarus, you know, they've, um, there's a rich man who's rich, you know, has everything, doesn't worry about anything, and there's Lazarus, who's a poor guy who has to beg for scraps, uh, the dogs lick his wounds, you know, he's out there, he's laying on the street, you know, probably doesn't sound like he can get around very well, and he has to beg for anything that he gets, he can't provide himself a living, you have one guy who has more than enough, and you have one guy who's poor, they both die the same day. One goes to heaven. Uh, at this point in time, it was Abraham's bosom. It was a holding place in the, in the center of the earth. That's how the Bible describes it. Divided by a great gulf. And it's called Abraham's bosom. You know, it's, it's a place of comfort. It's a place of where you're suckered, where you, where you are taken care of, where you have your rest. And, and you get the reward for the suffering in your life before Jesus purchased that salvation and then takes those into heaven. You know, that, that comes after the resurrection. And on the other side is hell. You know, what we think of as hell, the place of suffering, the place of torment. And so the rich man goes to the place of torment. Lazarus goes to the place of Abraham's bosom, verse 23. Uh, this speaks of, um, well, verse 22 says they were both buried, but verse 23 says in hell he lift up his eyes. This is the uh, rich man being in torments. He's tormented first day, day one. And being in torments, he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bo- bosom. He sees Lazarus over there being cared for with this patriarch of the Jewish, Jewish world, verse 24. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy life, lifetime receivest thou good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And he says, besides, you know, you and me, there's this great gulf and we can't get back and forth together. It's like, sorry, you had your chance. You had your life. You know, and, and you chose wrong. So Lazarus is over there enjoying refreshment. He's never enjoyed refreshment before. He had to take charity from someone to just barely get by, to just to have any kind of satisfaction. And now he has refreshment. You know, re- refreshment isn't a necessary, right? You know, if you're dying of thirst, you know, water is not a refreshment. Water is a necessity. I have to have some water. I'm going to die. And that's how he always was before. That's how he lived his life. Was just give me something so I can live and survive. Now he has refreshment, extra. You know, most of us have extra in that way, refreshment. And he has rest. Where well, he had to work and worry about everything in his life before, now he has rest. And, and he's over there 
with the famous, you know, he's with the famous Abraham, you know, he gets to rub shoulders with and hobnob with the patriarch of Judaism, you know, that he's there and that he has that as well. So he has refreshment and he has rest and he, and he has, he's rubbing with the, you know, with the upper echelon of famous people on that way, you know, and the rich man, day one, is thirsty. Rich man had probably never thirsted in his life, never wanted in his life. Never really been thirsty at all. And here he is in the first day in hell, and he is the beggar now. Please, just water. And water, one of the things that, is the cheapest utility we have, if not free all the time, you know, it's like uh, you can get water at a, at a restaurant for free, you know, or you get uh, the water fountains for free. You get, you know, it's out there, it's a free refreshment until he bottled it and then they sell it to you. But, yeah, but this water's free, or uh, I know it's the cheapest utility I have, you know, is, is that they, is they give us my, my water, and so... You know, water is out there. It's a necessity of life. And he didn't even have that. He's having to beg for it. He's a, he's a beggar for a drink that will never be quenched and never will be quenched. And as bad as that is, he is thirsty. For the first time in his life, I am thirsty. Direly thirsty. And it's going to always be thirsty. But he can also see the rich man or, the, or, or, the, or Lazarus on the other side. And he can see that he's drinking, you know, he's over there being satisfied, and he has water, and it's cool, and it's probably the best things he's ever seen before, and he can see that he's being comforted, and he sees those comforts, the comforts that he doesn't have, and he, and he can see all the, the rest, and he sees him hobnobbing with famous people, and he sees all this, and here he is, the lowest of the class, you know, that, that, that Lazarus over there, and, he's, and he knows Abraham now, and he's talking with Abraham now, and he's like, probably always longed to, to, to be in that kind of group, and so he sees him living like he never did, as now he lives like he never did. And he's like, there's no hope. You know, to see Lazarus enjoying drink and being comforted and, and hanging out with the patriarch and makes you wonder, you know, does that make you all the more thirsty? You know, to see it, like to have it that close and you can't have it? Does it add to your torment? This is having you know, a banquet prepared before mine enemies, you know. Um, Lazarus is there enjoying and basking in it. And the rich man's like, I had it all wrong. My priorities were all wrong. I thought I had it all. I thought I had success. I thought I had life by the horns. And, he shows he has nothing, and he's like, what a fool, what a fool. That's torment, right? I lived wrong. Every decision I made was wrong. Why did I do that? Why didn't I believe? Why didn't I trust? That's torments. It's not torture. It's torments, self-inflicted. Why didn't I? Why didn't I? And then I'm so thirsty, and I can't, and he has. That would add to the torment, right, to see the ones that you said were wrong living right you know, and being rewarded. That's preparing a table in the presence of my enemies. He will never have that thirst quench. It's been some 2,000 years. He's still thirsty. He will always be thirsty. He has no hope of ever having that, th- that thirst quenched. Can you imagine that? Because hope is a word that is not uttered in hell. Because there is no hope. Solomon says, remember that. All of us, everyone, are going to have to give an answer to somebody. We have to answer to someone. There's someone over us. He says, uh, may they give you some comfort. When they are lashing on you and they're being evil, he says, may, may, may you take that in stride knowing that how I respond will be judged. Do I need to be like them? Do I need to act like them? Do I want to become like them? No, I don't. And so I'm going to try to have my right attitude. I'm going to try to do it in the right way. And I'm going to remember that he has to answer to someone. You can kind of even pray like David, like, I hope he treats you like you treat me. You know? Even Jesus tells a parable about that too, right? About the guy who begged for some forgiveness of a great debt and then he goes out and he beats his servant and then he is really held, you know, who owed him like 20 bucks and then he's really held accountable when the king finds out about it. God's that way too. If he shows us mercy, he expects us to show mercy. 
And so Solomon says, there's going to be oppression. There's going to be a corruption in the system. But take comfort in knowing that they are held accountable. And maybe pray for that person. And so he's just giving us a little bit of, you know, something to help us along the way. Not to be so consumed with the oppression, the man. There's some people that are so trapped in their situation and where they are that they see no hope and never would see hope with the way out of it because they just see that that's what it is. This is how it is. This is my lot. And it just makes them a very bitter and pessimistic person. We say, realize they all give an account. And so I, I do take some comfort in that, knowing that. And that does change me. And it does give me a, a sympathetic heart for someone I might not have a sympathy for to be able to pray for them, realizing that hell's forever. And they have to give an account for that. And he has more advice. So Ecclesiastes 5 gives us some more. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5. <clears throat> this is more tips to help those in the lower tiers, or the, the bottom of the totem polers, uh, to have some hope. Uh, so Ecclesiastes 5, verse 9, he says, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. And Solomon seems... To delight in the ironies of life. He seems like he is wise enough that he picks these up and he kind of enjoys them a little bit. You know, thinking like the one before. Realizing that everybody in authority has an authority that they answer to. He's kind of like, there's a little bit of irony in that. You know, and so he, he kind of re- rejoices in that. Like I said, he has a sympathy for, you know, those who are being oppressed. You know, hopefully then he wasn't oppressive. And then here he's like, you need to remember here that the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. The prophet of the earth is for all. He says everyone needs the earth. God's gift to us. We have to have, this is the place where we live, right? NASA's spending millions of dollars searching uh, the universe, trying to look for another place like earth. We're unique. You know, we're a place that has food, water, air. We, we have all the things given to us that we need for life, you know, that is there given to us as a gift from God. And he says uh, we all need it. We have to have it. If the king doesn't have it, he dies. If the peasant doesn't have it, he dies. If there's no farm, there's no food. Uh, the king can have all the money in the world, but if he doesn't have any food, he doesn't do him any good. He's going to die. So he can't supply his house. He cannot take care of his needs. If he doesn't have a farmer out there working, right, he, he can't have anything. Agriculture and that community of agriculture, you know, you need it. You know, it's for everyone. Uh, if you don't have agriculture, you don't eat. The society doesn't work, and it breaks down, and basically you can hold the king captive in that way. He's like, just remember, without you, the king doesn't eat. Same way, you know, whether it's just farming or not, you know, without us, without us paying the taxes, you know, those things don't get built. Without somebody making the, the screw on the tank, you know, a tank, you know, we, we need everybody for this all to work. And so uh, this is where there is no head without the feet. You know, it, it's kind of in the New Testament setting. You know, you need the whole body for this to work. And we need to realize there is that kind of symbiosis. And so the peasant might be under the king and dependent on him for protection, and for the laws, and knowing that there's a rule of law out there, and there's a king that people have to answer to that holds them in check, you know, and there's a, there's a safety and a comfort in that, knowing that we, we have that kind of system. But the king is dependent on the peasant just as much. If, that, if those under him aren't doing their job, there is nothing for him to rule and reign over. There is no food. There is no way for him to supply his staff. You know, and so sadly, sometimes they forget that. But sometimes the lower classes rise up and they remind them, we put you in office, or we put you there, and we can vote you in, we can vote you out, and all that. When we are united, and when we are on the same front, when we're not buying a lie that is out there, and we can turn things around when they think they have it all sealed and settled, and we can show them they do not, you know, and that way we, we can rule and reign, and, 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 and kind of hold them in checks and balances in that way. Um, and so the powers in our hand, there's more of us than there are of them, 
You know, we need to kind of remember that. I think kind of Solomon's kind of giving a little tip of his hand here. It's like, you know, the king needs you, or he's not a king, and there's more of you than there are of us. And so you, know, you need to remember, you have power, more power than you think, and sometimes you need to be united in that way. And so we need each other. And the king needs you, you need the king. Um, he says, uh, I, I read a book uh, recently called The Continuity of Government. It's called The Cog. It's a real page turner. Uh, no, no, it's, it is. You're like, man, your reading list is different than mine. And it may be, but I'm curious. And, this, and, and the subtitle of it, the, the continuity of government, and the subtitle was, The Government's Plan to Survive the End of the World, Why It Let's the Rest of Us Die. And I'm like, okay, that I understand. You know, it's like, and it's talking about nuclear attack and the plans that our country has for if there's a nu- nuclear attack to make sure that government goes on, you know, when they bomb the rest of us to obliteration. So it's all these different uh, places they have to hide. It's all declassified information about the bunkers that they have. Uh, and the thing that really has me curious is outside of Morgantown, there's AT&T Tower that this book says is a bunker, you know, for those from Indianapolis government to come down and hide to. There's another one over this way. Stock full of foods, underground facility is there, place where they run to to hide when the bombs come. They said these facilities are about 30 miles outside of town, outside the blast radius for them to survive. And so we're right outside the edge. And there's a place for them all to run, so now we all know where to run uh, <laughs> to go there in, in case we see the mushroom cloud. You know, we've got a place to go. But they quickly realized, they're like, oh, we can, you know, they had all these plots and plans to keep the government going, you know, in case of a nuclear attack. You know, we need to keep the president, you know, we, whether we have him fly around or whether we put him in a hole someplace, you know, like after 9-11, I came went to both, um, that we have a continuity to keep this going. There's a place as a, uh, outside of uh, Washington, D.C. It was a whole hotel that had a whole underground hotel where the Senate and everybody could go and vote. There's a several different mountains that are hollowed out. Cheyenne Mountain's one where they can go and, and government continue underground, you know, to, to keep things going and moving uh, during nuclear fallout and to keep things going. <clears throat> they thought of all that and as they were thinking about all this and they're like, well, we can keep government going, but who keeps government going? You know, we need workers. You know, government doesn't know how to build anything. Government doesn't know how to make communications work. Government doesn't know how to feed people. Yeah, they store food up under there, but what happens when that runs out? They don't know any of that. And so they started trying to pick people, you know, of the lower tiers that aren't in the upper echelon, like, we need workers. We need skilled trade laborers. And so there's lists of those out there that get brought into these tunnels that are hidden under the ground because they realize... We don't have them. We don't have us, and we all just die anyway. And so, they, they, even and through that, it shows that we need each other. And so, Solomon's common theme here is about um, you know, realize we need each other. Realize that you're not on your own. Realize that there's an account that has to be given, and realize <clears throat> that uh, we're all accountable to God. And that's to help us to get through life. To help us not to be so bogged down and so downtrodden and so thinking that there's no oh woe is me. There's no help for us. But realizing that ultimately, we all have to give an account to him. I have like four more pages, but uh, I showed you half a movie. Um, so, <laughs> so, but I, and I was going to try to finish the rest of the book, but I, but I hate to start and not finish. But, uh, uh, but I have just a few minutes, and so we'll, we'll see what we can get. So he, he picks up at verse 10 with more things to help us. Um, and it's basically a common theme about riches. I'll read it, and then we'll see what we can comment on. Uh, it's, it's about riches and what to do with, uh, with, with our wealth. And so uh, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 5 says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with the increase. This is also vanity. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory on that one. It's like you, you never have enough money. You know, so once you get to a point, if I could just get to this point in my life, you realize, you know, if I can just get to that point in my life, or if I can just get this, you know, we're never satisfied. It seems like you always need more, and he builds on that here. He talks about, you know, if you have increase, it takes more to take care of it. 
You know, if you have a nicer, newer car, you pay more on insurance. You pay more, you know, for gas. You pay more, you know, to have it worked on and fixed. You know, it costs you more. You know, I always kind of say, keep the same kind of deficit. The deficits might be greater as things get better. But he says, really, you don't get ahead. He says, if you're just striving for that on this world, you know, it's vanity. If you're just striving to have more, he goes, wait, you're going to do? Just look at it. That's what he says in verse 11. He says, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. He says, basically, if you get more, you have more to take care of. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? He goes, what? You just look at it? Oh, look at all the stuff I got. Now what? You know, and he says, you know, there's really any satisfaction in that. Uh, verse 12, the, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Wherefore, he that eateth little or much, uh, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. He's like the rich guy, you know, he has more troubles, and so he has more trouble sleeping. Where the poor guy who just works hard, you know, and he's satisfied with what he has, he has good sleep. You know, it's like he's worked hard all day, he can go ahead with peace, no one's not going to, who's going to steal what I got? You know, and they kind of go, and he talks about the responsibility that comes with wealth. It's greater troubles in that way. So this is really something that you want to pursue. Uh, verse 13. There is sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Money can be a detriment. Verse 14, but those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing to his hand. He says, if you get it, easy gains, easy loss. If you work hard, all of a sudden you have a lot of money, you're probably going to lose a lot of money. He's like, oh, I made it real fast this way. You're probably going to lose it real fast. And then there's nothing for those that come after. So is money really what we're to pursue after? He's saying no. Verse 15, he came forth of his own mother's womb. Naked shall he return um, to go as he came, and he taketh nothing of his labor, wherefore... He may carry away uh, any in his hand. Basically, naked you came in this world, naked you leave, you can't take it with you. So what are we to do? Thankfully, we have answers to this because we have the New Testament. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, send your treasure ahead. You know, don't store up on this earth where thieves can break in and steal or moth can corrupt you know, or it rust or it breaks down. Send your treasure ahead. How do you do that? Be generous with what you've been given. Um, the Bible tells us that. We, we often think of it as just a... Uh, um, just a saying, but it's more than a saying. Better to give than to receive. It just sounds like, oh, that's just a good adage to live by. It's a Bible verse. You know, Acts 20, verse 35. It's better to give than to receive. And, and, and what Jesus is telling us is what Solomon is telling us here in the next few verses as I try to read through them quickly is that if you have, give. Don't just store it up. Use it. Bless others. Encourage others. Send it ahead in that way. If you use your money for God and his kingdom by being God in, in the sense that answering prayers, you know someone's struggling and you have extra, give. If you know someone who has a major desire or need in their life, give and help them in that time of need. Be an answer to their prayers. They're praying, Lord, we don't know. Willie is experiencing that right now. He has prayed. Lord, I'm sure he has prayed. Lord, what are we going to do? Someone's giving him a car. Someone's loaning him a trailer. We offered as a church. I said to him, like, you need anything, let us know. You need a couple nights in the hotel. And we've offered it to him. We will gladly meet that need to answer a prayer in that way. He's not called on us. So the Lord's meeting that need elsewhere. But we've made it available to him. You know, and we have others in our community, others in our flock who, who would say I, they have a great need. We're to take it upon ourselves to say, let's help them. To have a sympathy in that way. And, and to have something like, what am I going to do? Just keep this and look at it? To give unto them so that we're sending our treasure ahead where we are being a cheerful giver. It's one of the ways that God actually says, challenge me in this way. Outgive me. And yes, we support the church, but outside of that, we're to be looking for other avenues to help someone. When you, have a, when you know of a need in the community, to be able to give unto that. And to, you have a ministry that's doing a great and wonderful work, to give and support that while they're doing that. That's one of the benefits we have with Living Waters. We can give to help them as they are, have a platform that we don't have. They have millions of viewers on their YouTube channel. Let's keep giving them money to put good gospel presentations out there and have a part of that. We, ha we get to have that. Uh, we get to help with the Lord's Locker 
to be able to help down there in our community in that way as the gospel goes forth. We get a help. I tell you what, when I look at the pictures that Franzie and them have been sending back, and we see people in the clinic underneath in the basement of a building that is unfinished, they're lined up, you know, to where a lady opens up her house and this other stuff that they talked about, and to think that a little church in Trafalgar, Indiana, gave some money to help kick and get that started to get other people wanted to give. Man, to have that, you know, it's like to be a part of that and to have God put that on our heart and to do that and to be able to do that. It's awesome to think of what God's doing with money that would, what would we just have in our bank account or we'd pay off something here. Well, we have plenty. And to be able to give to those who have nothing, where they would then appreciate and see the hand of Christ moving and working, God says, that's what I'm after. You know, we don't hold our wealth with our tight hand. We're to hold it with an open hand and say, Lord, where would you have me give it? That's who he blesses. That's who he trusts with more. And if you're faithful with a little, he'll trust you with more because you're going to keep giving more and looking for bigger and better things to give in that way. And that's kind of how he sums this up. To quickly sum up the end, verse 15. Uh, verse 15 says you can't take with you. Verse 16. And also this is a sore evil that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? If you just do it for profit, so what? You know, it's going to, the pharaohs had a lot of golden items. We have them now. You know, it's in museums. And it's, they didn't take anything with them. Uh, verse 17. All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath of his sickness. There's just a lot of grief that comes with it. Verse 18. Behold that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink, and to enjoy the good of all his labor. And he that uh, he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for, uh, for it is his portion. He says, it's good for you to eat and drink. It's good for you to, you know, we're supposed to work. We're, we're, we're supposed to have, uh, he, he's equipped us with what we have to be able to provide for our families as husbands, as, as, as mothers, uh, to provide enough for us, to have it to where we are where we don't have to beg in that way. And he says, and then enjoy the good. What's the good? The good we can do with our money, not just like, look what all I have. Enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants you to work hard. He wants you to do that. But he also wants you to have his eyes. Where can I help? Where can I be good? Can I help? Can I help more? Can I do more? Uh, Lord, give me a sensitive heart to someone who needs it, to someone out in the, in the highways and byways, to be that random act of kindness that, that, that answers a prayer to someone by paying for the guy behind you his meal or, or doing whatever the guy next to you is doing something you know, that encourages them. He says, that's it, to be able to do the good, that you have enough that you're like, Lord, where can I bless someone else? I challenge you to do that this week. And I bet you he shows you where you can help someone else. And then take the step of faith and do it. And you're like, I don't know, I don't want to be embarrassed. Don't do it for tooting your horn and do it else. Just do it to do it for the Lord and say, Lord, let me be your hands, your feet. Let me be that angel that comes down as that messenger of you to, to say God hears and you supply a need for them and you walk off and you don't know all the story, but knowing that God will use that to his good to say that, remember when I helped? Remember when that showed up? I can think of times in my life where that's happened, where God has encouraged us by all of a sudden some random kindness from someone that we don't know. So I know who it came from. It came from the Lord and a humble servant who obeyed the Lord in doing that. We get to have a part of that. And Solomon says, that's good living under the sun. That's it. You know, that's it. Being a good uh, steward in, in that way. And the New Testament confirms all that. Verse 19. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and he hath given him powers to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labors. This is the gift of God. For he, sh uh, he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him with the joy in his heart. 
It's kind of a clunky way of saying it. He says, but you won't remember all the bad days. You won't remember all the hard work. When you have taken what you have earned and you have enough for you, and then you say, Lord, where can I help someone else? Like the Proverbs 31 woman who's out doing charity work as well. And you're able to give and help someone else, even if it's just a young family, and a time when you're like, I bet there's, let's give them enough that they can go out and have something nice, or do out this this way, or leave a gift card here and there. Just enough to give them that little bit of encouragement over. He says, you'll remember those joys more than your hard work. You'll remember the joys that you do for him, let alone he'll reward that forever. Uh, one way you can put it, some people put it this way, he's like, that's one of the papers that God has on his refrigerator. My kid did this. They helped someone else and you're on God's fridge in that way. Here's, here's the work that they did. Here's the kind note that they wrote. Here's the kind gift that they gave out of, the, out of even out of their want a little bit. We're like, we have enough. We have a little bit extra. Can we give it to them? That God says, that's it. That's my people. That's my people working, using money to his advantage, and not to a greedy thing that Satan will use to drive a wedge. Um, the love of money is the, you know, the root of all evil. But if we love the Lord, we can use that uh, to, to glorify the Lord. And Solomon here is reminding us that, that you know, don't do it for just money's sake. Don't just do it for more wealth. And if you, or along the way, and as you have these things, if God's given you the ability for that, to look to how you can bless and encourage others, and God says he will reward it. That is sending your treasure ahead as Matthew 6 tells us. And so, uh, better to give than to receive. And so, uh, like I said, it's one area that God told us to test him. We don't want to miss those opportunities. We need to be ready to help. Uh, we need to be ready to give. Uh, we need to um, answer prayers in that way just by being faithful. And so, I pray that uh, you're prepared for that. And we pray that we would just mimic and be like our Father. He is very gracious and he is very kind and he is very given in what he's given us. And we get to go out and then act that out, live that out loud because that's who we are, because we're in his image. And now we should have a desire to want to help and want to encourage and want to bless others in that way and to answer prayers. You know, God answers your prayers, be an answer to prayer for someone else. We have that power within us with much that he's given us. And so.